Hello and thank you for joining us today for a special edition of the Significant Others podcast sponsored by MIMCO and in partnership with Our Watch ahead of International Women's Day. We would like to pay our respects to the Boon and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulon Nation and the Ghana people on whose land this podcast was recorded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Our lovely Season 1 listeners will remember that we welcomed our Watch CEO Paddy Kinnisley onto two episodes of The Review to break down the work that this organisation, the national leader in the prevention of violence against women and their children. Over the next two weeks, we are over the moon to be able to bring you more important content with our Watch, as this is an issue that we are both incredibly passionate about. To mark International Women's Day, and in honour of six years of MIMCO support for our Watch, joining us today we have our Watch Chair, Natasha Stott-Despoyer, and our Watch Ambassadors, Anti-Domestic Violence Advocate Tarang Chawla, Director of Ending Female Genital Mutilation Australia Khadija Blah, AFL player, father and husband Ben Brown, and sports journalist and presenter Tiffany Cherry. This year's International Women's Day theme is Choose to Challenge, which encourages everyone to call out gender bias and inequality and to seek out and celebrate women's achievements. Before we begin, we'd like to remind the listeners that this conversation has the potential to be distressing. If you or someone you know is impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence, contact 1800RESPECT. And if you're concerned about your own behaviour, reach out to Men's Line Australia. Violence against women and children in Australia today is a national emergency. Our watch exists to change the conditions shaped by gender inequality that allow this violence to occur. Primary prevention places the onus on everyone to choose to challenge disrespect towards women every day but it also requires major workplaces, universities and governments to overhaul their structure, systems and practices to embed gender equality. We would like to thank and acknowledge all of our guests for their time today and remind all our listeners that on International Women's Day, March the 8th, 2021, 100% of profits made at MIMCO stores and online will be donated to Our Watch. So far in this partnership, MIMCO has donated over a million dollars so that Our Watch can continue with the amazing work they do preventing family violence. So if you're out shopping, don't forget to check out MIMCO and be part of the change. You can also be a voice for change, challenge gender bias and connect with like-minded communities using the hashtag BePartOfTheChange and the hashtag ChooseToChallenge on social media. Our content from this panel will be split into two parts, today featuring two incredible women who joined us via video link from Adelaide. First, we'll be hearing from former Senator, advocate, author, and personally, one of my idols, Natasha Stott-Despoyer. We would like to advise listeners that today's episode of The Review contains discussions of gender-based violence, discrimination, and female genital mutilation. All right, so Natasha, if it's okay with you, we would love you to give us a brief introduction to yourself and what you do. Well, hello, my name's Natasha Stott-Despoyer. I am the chair, in fact, the inaugural chair of Our Watch, the National Foundation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children. Uh, I am also a former diplomat, former senator, and I currently serve on the UN Committee for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. So basically, lifelong gender equality advocate. Well, I guess on that, (laughs) what drives violence against women and what does Our Watch do? Well, while there's no one single cause for violence against women and children, we know that there are a number of drivers that can lead to this violence. And These drivers that underpin some of the attitudes and behaviours include uh, limiting women's independence, showing disrespect for women, condoning or trivialising disrespect, and also uh, an adherence to very rigid gender stereotypes. So these are just some of the factors, 
although I do know you'll have uh, listeners and uh, viewers who will say, well, hang on, what about uh, poverty or a history of childhood abuse or mental health problems, alcohol, drugs? Well, these factors can exacerbate the violence, but they don't cause violence against women. They can exacerbate and compound them, just like COVID, with some of the stresses that we've all been dealing with can exacerbate uh, the underlying drivers, but it's not the cause. So no excuse for abuse. And I guess that's what our watch is about, trying to raise awareness of what causes violence. But our main role, our key function is primary prevention. So that means stopping the violence before it starts, addressing some of those behaviours and attitudes that give rise to the violence in the first place. And the good news, violence is preventable. So we can all do bits and pieces in the places we live, love, learn, work and play. So whether that's in the sporting setting, which I think you might know a bit about, uh, education with respectful relationships, uh, whether it's the stereotypes we view through the media, uh, whether it's our workplaces. And I can tell you my former profession of politics knows a lot about bad culture and poor behaviour when it comes to representation of women and supporting women to be respected and promoted and supported. So there are a range of settings in which our watch works, uh, but there's a lot of work to do. And individuals, we each have a role to play as well. So Natasha, it's thanks to Mimco that we are here today and having this conversation. And we'd love to see businesses involved in creating positive change. Can you tell us a little bit more about that partnership and how corporations like Mimco can actually affect change? Well, I'm really excited at the partnership that our watch has with Mimco. Mimco actually reached out to us and not just for one small project or a one-off, but for the long term. Six years now, we've been celebrating this partnership. More than a million dollars has been donated to our watch for our work and really evidence-based research that we do in order particularly to address uh, parenting roles or address gendered stereotypes. Um, MIMCO actually believes in sustainable change. And so I can't say enough good things about them. Okay, I love the products, don't mind a handbag or two, but genuinely admire the fact that they have used their uh, ability, their outreach, their profile to change lives for the better probably save some lives as well, to be honest. And I think there's a big role there for business, enterprise, corporate Australia, not just because it's the right thing to do for your own workforce, workplace and employees and your clients and consumers, but you can have maximum, really, really long-lasting impact uh, across the community. And so I'm grateful to MIMCO for their vision and also for being in for the long haul, realising that cultural change doesn't happen overnight. And so we need the evidence, we need the research, uh, especially on parenting, um, but they've also helped us in so many ways with the campaigns that we've run and increasing awareness. So thank you, Mimco. And this is an invitation for other businesses, big or small, uh, to get on board and be part of the change. I particularly want to acknowledge the Because Why campaign that MIMCO helped us run through their funding, uh, challenging gender stereotypes and, you know, really promoting uh, women in all our diversity and difference. Yet another visionary campaign that we were able to run as a consequence of the generosity and the foresight of MIMCO. 
Yeah, they really are leading the way in, in a partnership like this. And as you said, it's a, it's becoming a long-standing relationship and ho- hopefully something that we see for the future because it is, as you said, it is changing and it takes time and commitment. So, yeah, thank you, Mimco. <laughs> <laughs> but some of that research shows the effects of COVID-19 and the pandemic, that that could reverse the progress that has been made on gender equality and women's rights. So how do we protect this progress that has been made? Well, I'm seeing the disproportionate effects of COVID on women and girls all over the world uh, in my various capacities. And there's no doubt that Australia has not been immune to this, even though we've been comparatively fortunate uh, in the way that we've handled this virus and the pandemic. But We knew that violence against women was uh, a worldwide epidemic before this pandemic struck. And in Australia, the research is clear. Uh, The rates of violence have increased. The severity of violence has really increased. First time violence has increased. And people have almost weaponised COVID uh, in in dealings, in sort of coercive relationships. Um, You know, women being scared to go to hospital, for example, or feeling threatened by a partner who might or might not have the virus. So it's not only in itself had an impact on the work that we do with violence specifically, but more generally the impact it's having on gender equality. Uh, It's exacerbated uh, existing gender inequalities. Uh, Women, as we know, are more likely to be frontline workers and so more susceptible, arguably, to the virus, uh, whether they're cleaners, um, uh, nurses, doctors, uh, whether women are dealing with the increased burden of unpaid work in the home, and we've seen this all over the world. Uh, I suspect a few people have been doing homeschooling, but not only that, just trying to juggle unpaid work with paid work or even just dealing with the massive amount of family issues in a confined space. And I, my heart goes out to those in Victoria because those of us in other places in Australia, South Australia, we can't begin to imagine some of those stresses that men uh, and women and however we choose to identify how people have dealt with that. So COVID, we really have to start reimagining the future. We have to acknowledge that women mm. are severely impacted by this pandemic. And we have to start thinking about ensuring women's voices and agency are at the heart of any recovery, whether that's gender-sensitive budgeting or policies that reflect and reward unpaid work, uh, whether it's ensuring that we, you know, stem some of that backward pace that we've taken as a consequence of uh, COVID when it comes to women's work and other opportunities. I'm hopeful we might use this crisis in a way that does reimagine and transform our society, but it takes a bit of vision and it takes bold leaders, and I'll leave it up to you and your listeners to determine whether we've got that mix right, right now. I think that's all we've got yeah. for you today, Natasha. Um, thank you so much for your time and for, for sharing your expertise with us. This episode is sponsored by MIMCO in partnership with Our Watch. MIMCO's newest collection, Unite, celebrates passion, positivity, and empowerment. You'll see it modelled by change makers, women's rights activists, artists, and writers who are paving the way for a brighter future. We thank MIMCO for their support of the Significant Others podcast and, more importantly, their ongoing support of Our Watch. Up next is one of those models you'll see, Khadija Blah, who has an incredible life story experiencing war, discrimination and gender-based violence before coming to Australia as a refugee. As for the rest of the amazing work she does, I will let her introduce herself.
Khadija, thank you very much for spending some time with us. It is precious time. So could you please give us an introduction about yourself and what you do? Hi, everyone. My name is Khadija. I am a human rights activist, entrepreneur, and most importantly, a mom to a precious six-year-old. I am an ambassador for Our Watch as well, hence why I am here, and I am excited to have this conversation. Thanks, Khadija. So if we're talking about this year for International Women's Day, overhauling existing systems and structures, how do we ensure that those changes serve women from all backgrounds and experiences? And what do you think needs to change about our current approach? I think everything in our current approach needs to be changed, to be honest. Let's start this. Scrap the whole thing, burn it down, <laughs> like literally burn it. Even the ashes, then burn that as well. Our current systems, as they stand, are failing women who have diverse experiences. Currently, we only have default systems. So we have whiteness as a default, we have men as a default, we have able-bodied people as default, we have hetero people as a default, we have cisgender people as a default, people live in cities as the defaults. So all, everything we have caters for those defaults. Unless we actually overhaul that system of defaults, it means that people who have points of difference and different identities don't actually get included in anything. We're actually just like a second thought, almost. And when it comes to women around this space, what we see is that women who are indigenous, black women, culturally and linguistically diverse women across the board, women with disability, our LGBTIQ plus A, are not included in decision making, in programming. Um, and even when things are done, they always totally get botched completely and do more harm than good. So as everyone knows, I'm passionate about intersectionality. I think we need an intersectional approach in, on all levels of decision making. And we need to ensure that those directly impacted communities are leading, not governments. They are so out of touch with communities. They're out of touch with our lives and the impacts of gender inequality in our lives, how unsafe we feel, how decisions are made that are, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. So when the prime minister decided to put funding into the construction industry, who else rolled their eyes? I was like, excuse you, we're going through a pandemic and we've seen the research back up the fact that the pandemic was predominantly affecting women. Women were predominantly in essential position, essential work. But his thinking was, let's give money to my mates in construction. Who was constructing anything in a pandemic? I didn't see no construction happening. What I saw were women being nurses, caregivers, aged care workers, and working in, in, in kindies. That's what I saw. Where was the money for those work? Once again, that decision was purely made on a default system. Men were prioritized. Male industries were prioritized. Where were the female industries? Which most, well, all the essential industries were run by women. They were predominantly women workers. Uh, kindy, childcare workers were the first to lose the job seeker. Predominantly who works in childcare work? They're women. <laughs> so it's obvious to me that we lack inclusivity. We lack a gender equality framework, but more than that, we lack an intersectional framework. Because once again, all those industries are also highlighted are predominantly supported by cold women, culturally and linguistically diverse women working a lot of childcare, they work in aged care, they work in disability, they're nurses. My mom is a nurse. So you saw also this lack of intersectionality and understanding. When people were being racist to Asian women, they were forgetting Asian women were nurses. When they be racist and saying that it was a Chinese virus, they were forgetting that their offices were cleaned by Asian women. Did you factor that in? So we, we lack that. So my suggestion, I think, is that, like I said, this system itself needs to be overhauled. We need intersectionality. We need diverse voices in all uh, 
levels of government and all levels of decision making. Forget just calling us in for consultancy work. If we don't have a seat at the table, decision making will not be for everyone. They will once again just be for the majority and everyone else is left reeling with whatever is left, I guess. And that's unacceptable to me. Yeah. And it's particularly important, I think, when we talk about gender equality, that we think of all women, not some women, all women. What we also saw with the pandemic for cold women is the rise of DV in terms of spousal um, abuse. Because most cold women, some of them are on spousal visas. So the spouses were utilizing the pandemic to sort of perpetrate the abuse, using it to say, you can't leave the house because you have COVID, or if you leave the house, you will get COVID. So it was utilized as a form of control and manipulation in a way that probably was, abuse was already existing, but COVID gave the perfect cover. The freedom of movement was limited to the point where they literally had to make up excuses of why they should leave the house to get away from their abusers, essentially, especially for you guys in Victoria. And we saw what happened with your towers. I mean, that couldn't be a perfect more example of the inequality of COVID and the response to COVID for cold women. Those towers were full of cold women. They were full of women who English wasn't their first language. They were full of women who were on spousal visa. They, were, uh, they had been in detention center. They had gone through war. Then within a twinkle of eye, they were locked into buildings and told they couldn't leave. They could barely have air to breathe, stuck in homes with potential abusers, carrying roles with no break. I don't think we could understand what that would have looked or felt like. So when I saw a lot of people complaining in Melbourne, I'm like, do you know what it is like to have gone through war and torture and seek safety only for then a government to essentially create that, those same conditions for you after you have got safety? And how triggering that would have felt like for them in, in, in that environment to have the people in uniform outside guarding? Not if, you weren't even allowed to go get medicine. That's how bad it was. So I don't think we have to look far on the impact of COVID on cold women. As an advocate and a leader, I guess, in your community, did you feel a certain burden to be somebody that has to relay that information? Because it should have been government-driven that it is translated to however many hundreds of languages are spoken just within Australia. And it obviously wasn't. Did What was that burden on you? Oh, it did. I absolutely felt And I felt my privilege as somebody who can read materials in English. I absolutely felt the privilege I had. I have as a university-educated woman and somebody with a platform that I could access information so easily, you know, and, and could readily read and consume it enough to know what was happening for me. So then I then felt this responsibility to relay that information, be it WhatsApp. I have never spent so much time in WhatsApp in my entire <laughs> freaking life. Like, they should be paying me to be on WhatsApp. Um, I have never spent so much time on the phone talking to people, and I don't even like talking to people that much. All of a sudden, I have to talk to people because you had grandmas, you had uncles, especially the elderly. Information just got lost mm. to them. They, 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 they weren't even aware the world was coming to an end. They just thought they could go out and about. You're like, you can't leave the house. I know you can't see your grandkids. They're like, what do you mean? Who said so? The government said so because there's corona. What is corona? Who is corona? It's not what. It's not who is corona. It's not a person. <laughs> <laughs> at some point i'm just like oh my god bless their hearts they don't know what's happening they have no idea <laughs> the world is coming to an end so it's relaying that information also in very simple terms you must wash your hand uh you must cover your face 
you cannot go and see the grandkids. They can't come because you're vulnerable and they are vulnerable. It's really breaking that down into simple language, but also watching them get very scared very quickly as they saw people panic buying, as they saw everyone else panic. They went, are we in war? Are we in war? It's like, no, we're not in war. It just looks like war-like conditions. We're not. So then the counseling kick in. It wasn't just giving information. It was the counseling that was needed. I had people were calling me saying they were having nightmares for the first time. They were relieving, being in war conditions and having to hide under their bed. They thought they were about to die. They thought they would never have freedom. This was going to be permanent for the rest of their life. They thought they were being targeted. Maybe this was another form of racism. Maybe that's what it was. Um, and I wasn't the only one who felt this way. I think a lot of communities felt like the burden was on them to give information to their communities. A lot of community leaders and everyday people felt like without that sense of community and us stepping up, we had been let down by the government. We had to pick up the slack. We had to pick up the gap in information sharing, but even more than that, just the mental health support for everyone to ensure that we were all okay. And I love this quote. Somebody said, we were all in the same storm, but not in the same boat. Don't get it twisted. Some people had yachts. Like the pandemic was hard, but we were not all treated equally by it and we were not all impacted equally by it. And this is why intersectionality is so important. We must constantly acknowledge those inequalities in our society. And then we have processes and decisions are made that further amplify and I think widen those inequalities. Could you also perhaps help people with what they can maybe do to fight for gender equality and not just gender equality, but gender equality with an intersectional approach? As you know, I, I like talking about being a mom because I feel like when we talk about these issues, gender inequality, racial inequality, sort of anything around that equality framework, we sometimes forget the most fundamental element of our lives, our families. Everything actually, that's the foundation of our community and our society. So I think the first starting point, in your home, where are moms here? The way we raise our kids is a starting point. You know, the way, we, we, the toys they play with, whether we allow them, if you're a boy, can your, 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 your son play with toys that are not designated for boys by society? Can they wear all colors? Sammy looks good in pink, by the way, especially that pink you're wearing, Esther. My baby boy looks good in <laughs> pink. Let me tell you, he rocks it. Real men wear pink, anyway. He's allowed to cry. You know, not that whole, oh, boys don't cry. Be a good boy. Be a big boy. No, no, no. He doesn't need to be a big boy. He's not a big boy. He's a child. He's allowed to cry. Mm. Allow him to have all the vulnerable emotions. He's allowed to, to be scared, to be sad. To, 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 he's allowed to make choices that are not based on his gender, but based on his interests. So when we go to the toy shop, let your kids go through all the aisles. They don't know boy, girl. We're the ones telling them boy, girl. Let them choose toys based on their interests. Mm. So Sammy has a doll. That's his baby. Here's a truck. Your daughters, stop telling them they've been bossy. Because we don't say that. When a boy is bossy, we say he's a leader. Your daughter's been a leader. Let her boss the hell out of you. She's practicing your news so she can practice on the world. <laughs> Let's let our daughters be everything they want to be. Let's nurture them. Let's allow them to play with trucks, whatever they want to be. Let's not let those rigid gender stereotypes, and we know that contributes to domestic and family violence. Let's tackle that in our homes. The conversation around families, around the division of labor, Dad can stay at home and be a stay-at-home dad. Dad can cook. No, oh, we're just going to wait for mommy to feed us. What about dad? Doesn't have two legs, two arms? Oh, is something wrong with him? I, I, last time I checked, he had all of that. I, I'm sure he can cook. Our children are watching us. How we divide labor. How mom and dad talk to each other. How the people you invite over when you have dinner tables, when they make assumptions about whose role is what to do what. I think there's so much power within our homes 
to actually tackle gender inequality, but also racial inequality, just stereotypes when they, they brought up, you challenge them. Oh, I only like that black friend. I, I, I don't know. Why do you only like that one black person? What's wrong with all the other black people? Okay. We have an opportunity to consistently challenge and we can challenge it with love. I'm not saying you got to go be a Rambo all of a sudden and, you know, punches are coming out. That's not what I'm saying. We can do it with love. We can do it with curiosity. What do you mean by that when you say you don't like Asian people, you don't trust Asian people? What does that mean? Can you, can you tell me what you mean by that? Let them explain what they mean. What do you mean? Because that hasn't been my experience. And it seems weird to group a whole bunch of people. Have you met all Asians? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. I think you met them all. So one bad experience and they're all now bad. Oh, interesting, Paul. Very interesting. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think outside of our Thanks, homes. Paul. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Um, in our workplaces where you have the Karens, you know, you know then all of a sudden, I think that's another sphere of influence. I think, you know, in our workplaces, in our sports club, in our schools, I'm a believer that, you know, we need a whole of community approach to tackle this. So it's one thing we can do stuff at home, but our kids inevitably go to school and kindies and they, they have their own principles. I remember when my kid was in kindy, I asked if they could have dolls that look black and brown because Sammy, even to this, now he's six, but even when he was just younger, he knew he was brown. Okay. So he wanted to color in everything brown. He wanted things that looked like him and he wanted books that had names that sound like, well, Sam is not actually a very African, typical African name, but names like Khadija and Mohammed and, and all of that and Chinese name. He wanted to see his face. The other day he said to me, mommy, yeah. we don't have any men teacher in my school. Even from a gender mm -hmm. perspective, he's like, why are there nobody who looks like me, my gender? I'm like, I don't know. We should talk to the school about that. I am not talking to the school about that. But I have other things to talk to the school about. <laughs> but it just tells you, though, how kids are so aware themselves of that representation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That, that he questioned that. I see nobody else who looks like me in this particular way. He's so diverse in terms of color. Most of the kids are, are black like him. But he didn't see with his teachers. He didn't see somebody who was a... And I haven't seen a male teacher either at the school. I'm sure they're hiding somewhere. But I didn't see one. And that bothered him. So essentially what I'm saying is we all have power in our sphere of influences to continue to advocate for gender equality, racial equality. It's those small things. For me, it was a doll at school for Sammy. It was making sure they had books that were diverse and inclusive. And in the workplace, it's having gender inclusion at committees, wanting to make sure that we tackle the gender pay gap. We highlight the inconsistency in promoting men and women, that women are safe from sexual harassment. You know, we, we're seeing that play out right now in our, our parliament. What safety looks like for women in a working place. We have a right to go to work and be safe. Absolutely. No man is worrying about what kind of shorts he's wearing in the office, whether his ankle are peaking and is he unsafe. Nobody's doing that. Those are the default. But yet women have to worry about our cleverage. What would that suggest? How would somebody interpret that? That if we don't dress a certain way, we wouldn't be taken seriously. If you're blonde, you can't be smart because of the you know, bimbo stereotype we have going on. If you're a black woman, I'm worried about being seen as aggressive and angry. So I'm always trying to not offend a Karen. Oh, poor Karen, wouldn't want to offend you at all whatsoever. In every area of our lives, we're all called and given the opportunity to call out inequality in small and big ways. And I don't think it's as scary as people like to think. I think it's just that we sometimes are too comfortable and complacent and don't want to rock the boat. But we are never going to achieve gender equality, racial equality, or have equality for all people, no matter the point of difference. If every single one of us is not willing to do the work, no matter how small, 
you're contributing, whether it's as a parent, as a sister, a dad, a mom, a worker, a manager, what you do matters. So take the opportunity to do your part. Thank you so much for breaking that all down for us and I think inspiring us a little bit to your um, exuberance and your energy is uh, a little bit addictive. I feel like I need to go for a run now. Just do, I need to get up and do something. And thank you so much, Kitty for challenging stereotypes in a really big way and we're so grateful for your time, so thank you. Thank you for having me. Love the work that you guys are doing. It's so awesome.